just invite you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we come to God's word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your word that is living and active. We pray, Jesus, that you would speak. Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would guide me, that I might speak truthfully, faithfully your words to these, your beloved people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open to Matthew 7. Uh, because of my trip to India and our minus 50 Sunday, the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount study has been a little bit disjointed, but we're coming back to it today, and then in three Sundays from now when I'm back, we will conclude it, so thanks for bearing with us as we kind of bump our way to, to the end here. We're going to look at verses 21 to 23 of Matthew 7. Uh, before I do that, I want to begin just with uh, reflecting with you on something that I completely fail to understand. And maybe you are a person who does this, so um, no judgment, not really, maybe a little bit. But I don't understand people who employ the strategy with the aim of helping themselves be on time, which I'm all about being on time, but their strategy is to, to try and trick themselves by moving their clocks ahead so that, so that the clock is wrong and if they that, that, that somehow that hurries them up and helps them to get on time. You don't have to put your hand up, but I know there's at least one person who has employed that strategy, and, and I don't get it. I, I mean, do you, do you really forget that you changed your clock, that the clock, the time in the clock is not correct? Do, do you just forget? Or like, at some point, doesn't it kind of kick in? You're like, oh yeah, I got an extra 10 minutes. I, I just, I don't understand that strategy to try and trick yourself, to deceive yourself. I don't get it. I don't, I don't know how it works. Apparently, uh, some claim that it works. Not always, clearly. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, that was in my notes. It's a funny story about self-deception, but all laughing aside, the text that we are looking at, that we're exploring this morning, is a text uh, about being self-deceived, how self-deception is a serious and real danger. Uh, it's a text in which Jesus gives us this incredibly sobering word of warning. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that this may well be the most solemn word ever uttered in the world. One author says this about self-deception. Uh, deception in general happens when you fool someone into having false beliefs. Self-deception happens when the person you fool is yourself. It's possible to get trapped in a cycle of self-deception, a cycle that reinforces your false beliefs and that prevents you from knowing and understanding what is true. In the verses that are before us, the verses that we're going to unpack this morning, Jesus warns us of the danger of being self-deceived. Jesus warns us of the danger of believing something to be true that is, in fact, false. Now, before we turn to and read those verses, I want to remind you of what has uh, come immediately before this. It's been a little while since we've walked through the previous two paragraphs. Let me remind you. Uh, when we came to Matthew 7, Ma the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, 7. We've been walking through for uh, about a year and a half. But when we came to Matthew 7, verse 13, I, I asserted the fact that essentially Jesus' sermon proper at this point was over, that what Jesus is doing at this point is call, not, not providing new information so much as, as calling us to be careful in thinking about our response to what he has already taught. 
Uh, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus speaks about two gates. Uh, the narrow gate that leads to a narrow way and the broad gate that leads to a broad way. And in that text, Jesus says a couple other things. He says that, that many take the gate that is wide. Many enter into the broad road. Uh, Jesus says a few choose the narrow gate. Not only that, but Jesus says that the narrow gate is the gate that leads to life, whereas the, the wide road, the wide gate, leads to destruction. Jesus, in that text, puts before us, every one of us, this choice. There are two ways. And he calls us to choose the narrow way, which is the way of discipleship, the way of obedience, the way of the gospel. In the passage that we looked at uh, last number of weeks ago now, in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20, Jesus warns us of false prophets. That is, he speaks of those, he, he describes these false prophets as ferocious wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. He warns us that there will be people in the church, purportedly to be in the church, who will claim to speak on behalf of God, who in fact are, are not speaking on behalf of God. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in disguise. They, they look like Christians in many ways. They sound like Christians. They use Christian language. They even attend church, some pastor churches or lead Christian organizations. But Jesus says they are ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing. And he warns us to watch out lest we be led astray. This morning we come to another word of warning. Here Jesus warns us that not only are there false prophets, he warns us that there are false professors. Those who profess faith in Jesus, but that profession of faith is in fact not genuine. They, will, they claim to be Christians, but as we will see, they are in fact not part of God's kingdom people. Let's read now. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 21 to 23 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There are three things that I want to talk about this morning as we unpack these difficult verses. First, the reality of self-deception. Second, the anatomy of self-deception. And third, the avoidance of self-deception. The reality of self-deception, the anatomy of self-deception, and the avoidance of self-deception. Let's consider first the reality of self-deception, the very real possibility of being self-deceived. Jesus says to us, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We already know that not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we know that some choose the wide gate. Jesus says a couple paragraphs earlier, in fact, many choose the wide gate. Jesus could have said, not all will enter the kingdom of heaven, but that's not what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment, there will be those who say the right thing. There will be those who profess Jesus to be Lord, but who will find themselves excluded from the kingdom. 
On that day of judgment, on that day of final reckoning, there will be those who, to their surprise, find themselves on the outside. In fact, verse 22 says the word many. Jesus doesn't say there might be a few, maybe, maybe not. He says many. Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment, it will be a day of surprise for many. He teaches us here that there are people who believe themselves to be in right relationship with God who are, in fact, not. They are self-deceived. They are deluded. They are fooling themselves. Now, it's okay to get some things wrong. This is not one of them. This is not something that we want to get wrong. This is eternity in the balance. This is life and death. This is salvation and damnation. Indeed, as I quoted earlier, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he may well be right when he says, these are the most solemn words ever uttered in this world. One of the reasons why I almost always choose to preach through biblical books, or in this case through a whole section of a biblical book here, the Sermon on the Mount, is because it, it leads us through all that God says. It, it, it forces us to look at the difficult bits, the bits that, quite frankly, I'd rather not preach, that you may well not want to hear. This is a fun text. It's been a hard week. I've, I've had a heavy heart throughout this week, knowing that this is where we're going, that Jesus has this, this sobering word of warning to speak to us. Now, I don't... I don't want to cause any undue fear or anxiety. I, I, don't, I don't want to plant doubts in our minds, but I want to be faithful to Jesus. And it is Jesus who shares these sobering words with us, and so we must consider them. We must take them to heart and hear them. Jesus tells us that it is possible, that it is a very real danger to be self-deceived. And so we need to take that to heart. Let's turn secondly to the anatomy of self-deception. There are some today who would conclude from a superficial reading of just verse 21 that, that doctrine is not important, that it doesn't really matter what we believe. After all, Jesus says that not, it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven who will enter the kingdom. Some will take this and say, pit this faith against works, and they'll say, in fact, that, that the faith, the belief part isn't important. It's the doing that matters. So th- th- this is saying that it's, it's those who do good, that, that those around us of whatever faith or no faith, that salvation is ultimately a, 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 a consequence of being good. But, but to read verse 21 that way is to grossly misread it. Jesus is not here criticizing those who say, Lord, Lord. In fact, Lloyd-Jones says no man is a Christian unless he says Lord, Lord to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not wrong to say Lord, Lord. It is necessary to come before Jesus and acknowledge him to be Lord. What Jesus is saying is that mere verbal profession is in and of itself not a confirmation of one's standing with God. It is not certain evidence that an individual is genuinely saved. Now there are three things that I want us to note in this text as we contemplate what self-deception can look like. 
First, a person who is self-deceived may be perfectly orthodox. That is, they may profess faith in Jesus. Jesus says here that on that day many will say, Lord, Lord. That is, they understand who Jesus is. They say the right things. They perhaps mentally assent to. They believe the right things. They acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. They acknowledge Jesus as God in the flesh. It would seem that their doctrine, their, their belief is orthodox, that it's correct, that they give mental assent to the truths of Scripture. But yet Jesus says that he will yet say to them, I never knew you. In James 2, James, the brother of Jesus, speaking about the vital place of, of discipleship, of obedience to Christ, uh, writes this, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What is James' point there? He is saying that, that, that even in the demonic realm, like the demons know who Jesus is. They know that he's the Son of God. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus encounters a man possessed by an evil spirit in the synagogue, the beginning of his ministry, and here's what uh, that man, the spirit, says to Jesus through that man's uh, body. He says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The point is clear. Even the demons know those truths. Even the demons recognize those truths would give mental assent to them. But, but that belief does not equate to them being redeemed. The Scriptures teach us that we must believe in Jesus, that we, we must put our faith in Christ, that apart from faith in Christ we are lost, that, that we, we need to believe, Romans 10, 9, if declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But we also need to grasp the fact that what the Scriptures also make clear is that to believe in Jesus means more than mere mental assent to a set of propositional truth claims. According to Jesus, mere mental assent to who he is is not evidence of genuine faith. Verbal profession alone is not evidence that one is saved. New Testament scholar Michael Wilkins puts it this way, an oral confession of Jesus as Lord can ask an unrepentant heart. So we need to recognize as we consider what self-deception looks like that simply believing the right thing is not certain evidence of genuine faith. Secondly, we recognize in this text that a a person who is self-deceived may yet be someone who prophesies in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 22. Uh, did we not prophesy in your name? Remember, prophecy is not only speaking about the future, though it certainly can include it. Prophecy, I said this a number of weeks ago, is declaring truth on behalf of God, claiming to speak on behalf of God. Preaching is prophecy in that sense. Speaking of Jesus is prophecy in that sense. It is speaking on behalf of God, speaking spiritual truths, making those claims. So what Jesus is saying is that a person can boldly proclaim Christ. They can share about Christ. They can preach about Christ and not actually be saved. Speaking about Jesus, speaking in the name of Jesus, is not certain evidence of genuine faith. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, speaking again of the call to obedience, to discipleship. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul recognizes that one can proclaim gospel truths and not be genuinely saved. We think of the Old Testament prophet Balaam. Remember that story that we find in the book of Numbers, Balaam is hired by the king of Moab to, to curse Israel, and, and Balaam says to the king, I can only say what God says. And so instead of cursing, he ends up blessing Israel over and over. He ends up getting fired, but he, he doesn't get his wages. And then he finds this way of leading Israel astray in a sin. Balaam is an evil man, but he, he spoke on behalf of God. Lloyd-Jones asserts that it is possible for a man to preach correct doctrine in the name of Christ and yet himself remain outside the kingdom of God. Third, a person who is self-deceived may well be a person who performs all kinds of mighty and powerful charismatic deeds. Look again at our text. Lord, Lord, did we not in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Perhaps we're reminded of the magicians in Egypt who by their secret arts performed some plagues that matched the first couple that Moses, by the power of God, performed. Maybe we remember that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, was among the 72 disciples who went out and and came back with that group and said, even the demons listened, submitted to us. Jesus in that context says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. In the book of Acts 19, we encounter Jewish exorcists who are casting out demons and and some who are doing so in the name of Jesus, the sons of Sceva, the seven sons. You may recall that story. They, They say, in the name of Jesus, and they try and cast out a demon. And the demon says, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And that demon possessed man beats the tar out of these seven guys and they run away naked. For Jesus will say this, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Not every demonstration of power, of mighty deeds, of miracles is evidence of genuine salvation, whether empowered by God in his sovereignty for his purposes, or by the power of Satan still operative in this world, what the Bible makes clear is just simply because an individual exercises spiritual power is not certain evidence of genuine faith. Alistair Begg, who is a great preacher, he writes this, it is possible to be used by Jesus to build his church without genuinely being a Christian. It is possible to be gifted by Jesus with various abilities without genuinely being a Christian. It is possible to have completely orthodox theology and know your Bible very well without genuinely being a Christian. Giftedness does not equal acceptance of Jesus' lordship, and nor does being a great preacher. 
What Jesus contends in this text is that none of these things in and of themselves are evidence of genuine salvation. One can manifest all of these things and yet remain lost, yet remain outside his kingdom. Let's turn thirdly now to the avoidance of self-deception. Jesus in this text is warning us about this very real danger, being self-deceived, of believing to be true something that is in fact false, that, that we are in the kingdom when in fact that might not be the case. And so that leaves us all with a very pressing question. Is there a way to know that we are genuinely saved? Is there a way to know that we are not being self-deceived? Or do we simply go into the future hoping that we've got it right, hoping that we will not be among the many who will be surprised on that day of judgment? Well, our text and the Scriptures more broadly answer that question and say, yes, there can be assurance. We can know. Listen again to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the one who obeys the will of his Father is in the kingdom. The one who obeys God is genuinely saved. Obedience, it would seem, Jesus is saying, is the key to knowing that we are genuinely saved. Are we obeying Christ? Are we submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Are we doing the will of our Father in heaven? God's will is not something that is simply to be admired, talked about, praised even, or debated. It it is something that is to be done. We are to obey. We are to practice it. Listen to what, what we read in 1 John. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, these last few comments might provoke in some of us a very strong reaction. What happened to grace, Dennis? What happened to the good news? I I thought salvation was not by works but by grace. This this sounds like someone's switching the price tags. You're you're pulling the rug out from under us. This like at best like grace plus something grace plus our obedience and and i want to say to that absolutely not and let me flesh that out for you but here let me start with a quote from d.a carson he says this it is true of course that no man no person enters the kingdom because of his obedience but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I've been contending that the Sermon on the Mount is descriptive, that is not prescriptive. The Sermon on the Mount is not telling us how to become a Christian. It is describing the Christian life. It is describing for us how our lives are transformed, what our lives begin to look like more and more when we believe the good news, when the Holy Spirit invades and and begins to transform us into his kingdom people.
The point is, as we walk through this, is that our lives are transformed by the gospel, by the good news that in Christ we are redeemed, that in Christ and in Christ and what he did on the cross, we are forgiven, we are washed clean, we are clothed with his perfection, we are accepted, we enter into his kingdom people. We have a new identity. We are the gospelized. And when we believe the good news, the gospel takes root in our hearts and we begin to be changed. We begin to be transformed inevitably, gradually, not fully, and never perfectly, not even close to perfectly, but but there is growth, there is change, there is transformation. It's it's not about the, the presence or absence of sin. There will still be presence of sin in our lives. We will struggle with things. We will fall down and need grace continually. But our attitude and response to sin is one where we repent of it and strive to obey, repent and believe. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins. We need to always remember that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to remember that. That is our anchor point. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who know that you come to God spiritually bankrupt. You come to God with empty hands. You come deserving only wrath. You come needing his mercy, his salvation. You come needing to be rescued. Blessed are those who recognize that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are not saved by our obedience. We are not but obedience necessarily follows. When we understand our helplessness apart from Christ, when we understand our desperate need for a Savior, when we understand what Christ did on the cross, when we see that on the cross He bore the penalty for your sin and for mine, that He suffered what you and I deserved willingly out of love for us, When we see that, and when we see that through faith in him we are washed, we are cleansed, we are purified, not only that, but we are imputed to us is Christ's perfect righteousness, his obedience, that that he has changed us, that we were dead and now we're alive, that we were children under wrath and now we are children of the Father. When we see that, our lives are changed. We, We experience this process of transformation, of sanctification, of being gospelized. It is cheap grace that says because I'm saved through what Christ did, because I'm forgiven because of the cross, because I'm clothed with his perfection, I can jolly well do whatever I want, live however I want according to my dictates. If that is what you believe, you have failed to believe the gospel. You have failed to encounter the living Christ. We, we cannot have such a cavalier attitude before our Savior. It, it is utterly incongruent with the gospel to have that kind of attitude in our lives as those who would claim to be Christ's. The Beatitudes describe Christian character, and I want to remind you not only of the first, but the second and the fourth. Do you remember the second Beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those, not who mourn because of sad things in their lives, but blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize the the sin in their life. Blessed are those who recognize the darkness of their hearts. Blessed are those who who see their sinfulness and their desperate need and, and weep over it, who are broken over their sin, and not only theirs, but the sin around them. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who are righteous. Blessed are those who recognize that they are not righteous. And they, yet they hunger, they yearn, they long to be rightly related with God and others. For they will be satisfied. This is gospel character. And you cannot... You cannot believe the gospel. You cannot genuinely come and kneel before Christ, recognizing your need, mourning over your sin, longing for his transformation, and then walk out the door and say, obedience doesn't matter. We are not saved by our obedience, but we are saved and called to obey. And Jesus says, it's those who do the will of my Father. Don't be fooled by mere profession. Don't be fooled by a life of service to God. Don't be fooled even by miraculous signs. The true sign of genuine faith is is a heart that beats after God, not a heart that will get it all right. We continually, the Christian life is a life daily of repenting and believing. Repenting and believing. We're not saved by our obedience. But obedience is key. If these characteristics, the Beatitudes, are utterly absent in your life, it should cause you pause. If you don't grieve over your sin, if you don't long to grow in obedience, it ought to cause pause. Michael Wilkins says, Jesus never emphasizes the external as being the highest sign of authenticity. He demands inward allegiance to God's will, which will produce the fruit of a changed life. If we have genuinely repented and put our faith in Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, our lives will change. We will be growing in obedience to the will of the Father. It it might be very slowly. It might be at times imperceptibly. It might be in fits and starts, but our lives will be changing. The Spirit of the living God dwells in us, convicting us of sin, and when he does, we repent and we believe, we trust, and we strive to obey. This text, these words of Jesus cut to the heart. They are hard words, hard words to hear, hard words to preach, but they are important words for us to consider. Now, some of you here this morning, some of you listening online, have no pretense to be a Christian. You've not repented and put your faith in Jesus. You're here because someone invited you, or you're here because you're curious, or you're here and you're not quite sure why, but you you wouldn't say that you're a a Christian, and that's I'm I'm so grateful that you are here. And I just want to say to you, I want to call to you and say, I invite you to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Repentance is, is simply means that we turn from the way we're living. We turn from calling the shots our, ourself, saying that, that, that I'm master of my own faith, that I, I'm king on the throne. We turn from that and we say, Jesus, uh, you're right, I, I, I am a sinful person. I need grace. I need to be rescued. That's what repentance is, turning from our own way to Christ and trusting in him, trusting in what he did on the cross, that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty. He suffered what you and I deserve. He absorbed it all. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs of it. So when we trust in him, we are washed 
and purified and cleansed. All our sin, all of it, is gone. And we are clothed with the perfection of Christ. If you're not a believer, I invite you today to repent and believe. But for the rest of us, many of us this morning who came here with the self-understanding that we are redeemed, that we are genuine believers, my aim this morning has not been to rock that understanding, but to simply put before each of us these sobering words of Jesus, so that each one of us would do what Jesus through his word calls us each to do. In 2 Corinthians 13, we read these words, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That is God's word to us, God's word to his people. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It is this examination in which Jesus calls each one of us who would claim to be among the redeemed. And my hope and my prayer is that through this this careful self-examination, we would each be able to recognize how Jesus is at work in us, how Jesus is indeed shaping us, how he is changing us, how he is, he is revealing to us sin in our lives and leading us into that place of repentance and, and choosing to follow after him, of inviting him to empower us to grow in obedience, and when we fail and we will, that we repent again and we choose again to follow after him. And if this morning, as you've listened to these words, you have been overwhelmed with a sense of conviction from the Spirit, I, I want to just invite you to respond to Jesus' warning. If you are recognizing that, you know, I've, I've professed faith, but I, I've never actually surrendered to Christ, I invite you to do that today. I invite you to surrender to Jesus, to His Lordship. There are all kinds of ways in which we can be self-deceived. We can fool ourselves into thinking we're good, but if we have not bowed before Christ, surrendered our lives to him, then we have missed what he has called us all to. For, for everyone, the call is the same. We would surrender fully to Jesus, that we would surrender fully to his lordship, that wherever he would expose a place in your life where, where you've not done that, we would, we would fall on our knees in that moment, open our hands and say, Jesus, I surrender to this to you now. That, that we would all cry with Paul, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That every area of my life would be his. And that is the posture of obedience. That, that is the posture of genuine faith. That is the posture of all those to whom Christ will one day say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from before the creation of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words. But they are words that you have spoken. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply them to each one of our hearts that we would do as you call us to do, that we would test ourselves. Lord Jesus, that you would bring conviction where, where we have perhaps been fooling ourselves. I pray, Lord, that every person here would be genuinely converted, 
that every one of us would surrender to you fully, that you by your Spirit would apply the gospel, Lord, and that you would transform us. And that as we recognize your work, your Spirit at work in us, Lord, that we would find assurance because we are yours. We pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.